What are you searching for? What are you searching for? And I don't just mean an excuse to get out of here or the best burrito in Fresno, (laughs) as important as those things might be in this moment, but at a deeper, like, soul level. What is it that you're searching for? Take a moment in this moment and think about it. We don't often stop to reflect on our deepest longings, our deepest hungers. One of my favorite events of this time of year is when Google releases its previous year in review video. They take all of the searches from the previous year and and turn it into a video that they compile around all of the things that we have searched for over the previous year. It's a fascinating thing that reveals and exposes, in my mind, some of the the hungers and longings that we have as a culture. And this year especially, because this year's video is built all around a singular question, a singular search, which is this question, how can I change? And so it's this six-minute video that shows all of these different ways in which people have pursued answers to this question. How can I change? And this is a a deep question. I mean, this isn't just like, how can I change the light bulb in, in my closet? Like, how can I change me? Or maybe the way that we're, the angle in that many of us are asking right around this time of year is, how can I be the me that I want to be? How can I become the person that I know deep down in my bones that I can become if I just get out in front of some of my bad habits or laziness or, 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 or maybe some of the things that are outside of my control? If some of these external circumstances we're able to change in some way, maybe then I could become the me I want to be. I could find that thing that would change everything if I had it, that thing that I'm looking for, whether it's an answer to a deep question or a new relationship or a new opportunity or maybe some resolution in a conflict. If I had that, then then I could be the me that I want to be. And I want to explore this question from four different angles over the next four weeks. This question of how can I change? How does a life change? How can I redirect some of my habits? How can I focus some of my longings in the direction of a type of transformation that is actually possible in the way of Jesus. And so we're going to 
over the next four weeks, engage in, in this series that we're call, calling Momentum. How can we gain some traction and some positive momentum by cultivating some particular habits that have been consistent over the 2,000 years of Christian history that have been effective in delivering on their promise for transformation? These four habits, these four disciplines, these four practices that when engaged in the in our, in our own being with openness and discipline and expectation, they actually do deliver on what they promise. And we're going to look at them through the, this language of directions. And that's an intentional use of that word because in, uh, in, in the biblical dictionary, sort of vocabulary, the word that often comes up in the conversation around life change is the word repentance. And that has a negative, sort of nasty connotation, at least at a street level. But repentance is ultimately about changing directions. It's about moving and being intentional about the direction of your life, the direction that you're heading in so that we don't get off course or get lost somewhere along the way. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. And today we're going to start in a kind of peculiar place uh, to open this conversation, and, and that's in uh, an ancient house church in the ancient city of Corinth. And this is a, a place that's a port city uh, on the Mediterranean Sea that one of Jesus' first followers who, ha who experienced himself a profound life change as a result of encountering Jesus that changed everything for him, including how he read the scriptures and participated in community. And he, he establishes this, this church, this little gathering of, of people in, scattered in and among homes. And, and this gathering, if it were all to come together, would be fewer people than are sitting in this sanctuary this morning. And Paul has this correspondence back and forth with this community that he's since left to establish other churches around the ancient world. And he begins this letter, which we know as 1 Corinthians, uh, in, in a way that he opens many of his letters, and in a way that was consistent with ancient forms of, of letter writing of his day, and that's simply a salutation, a greeting. And I, I was reading this greeting in the context of this letter a while back, and I couldn't even make it out of, out of the greeting into the context of the letter because I was stopped in my tracks by this sort of game-changer of a comment that Paul makes, that I think makes a world of difference in how we understand the transformation that's possible via Jesus. And Paul writes this in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that, I mean, what a delightful thing to say. What a, you know, he's complimenting the people that he's going to be writing this letter to. But what's fascinating about this is, is Paul is, in this letter-writing correspondence, 
because everything in this community that he's writing to is completely disorganized and dysfunctional. Things, there's lots of conflict. There's all sorts of craziness happening. People are mad at each other and not talking to each other. People are, I mean, it's like a moral and ethical dumpster fire that Paul is writing this letter into. And he begins to writing to these people who are fighting with each other, who are uh, engaging in illicit relationships uh, in the context of the church, uh, who disagree over profound theological issues, who, who take a single issue and make it the priority and, and define one another on, whether, on which side of this issue that people stand. Paul begins his letter to this disordered and dysfunctional community by greeting them and calling them, as we see in verse 2, saints. Now, these people are living like anything but saints. They're living in, in what we would understand more like broken, sinful, disordered, dysfunctional relationships. But Paul calls them saints. Now, there's a, a couple of different ways that you could think about what Paul says here in a couple different translations of this into English from the original Greek language that this was written in. There's, there's different sort of approaches. The one that we read, the, the translation says, called to be holy. You know, so this is a, a decision that says this holiness is in the future, it's somehow what they are not, but are called to be, right? So, hey, y'all are not holy, but you're called to be holy, right? You're called to be saints, even though you're, you're currently acting like sinners. Or, uh, uh, and, and the, another translation pretty much puts it the same way. You, this is a future tense. The emphasis is on what they are called to be. But then this last one gets, gets really, really close to what the original language says. It, it says, call, saints by calling, or by calling saints. You see, for Paul, Paul's fundamental understanding of the human condition in relationship to Jesus is that when we are in relationship with Jesus, the most definitive thing about you is that you have been made holy, the most definitive thing about people in relationship to Jesus is not their broken sinfulness in, in relationship to Jesus, although that is included, but the transcendent principle here is that the most important thing about you, the most important core part of your identity is that in the eyes of God, you are a saint, Amen. a holy one. And so for Paul, and for us, we hear this and we're like, uh, <laughs> I live with me? And I know that that's not really the most accurate description of how I operate when I'm not in public view, let's say. That's not really close to how I think of what it means to be a saint. You know, when I think of a, a saint, I think of somebody like, Mr. Rogers. 
or Desmond Tutu, Mother Teresa, somebody who's like, they're in a different category of person. Like exemplary behavior, they have an extra disposition of grace, like they don't get upset in, in grocery lines when the person in front of them takes out the checkbook, and I mean, if that's you, you are a saint. But it's like, that's not me, right? Like, and maybe if, if we look at this from the future tense, like people have, like, you know, maybe one day I could possibly be that with God's help, of course. But currently, right now, that's, that's not where I land. I'm, I'm not a saint. I don't see myself as a saint. And, and this is why Paul begins precisely where he does. Because for you and me, becoming the me that I want to be begins with changing who I see when I see me. Now forgive the, the Dr. Seussness of that phrase, but what I'm getting at here and what Paul is inviting us into is that Behavior modification, fundamentally, begins with identity formation. If you want to change something about yourself, it begins with changing how you see yourself. For example, if you wanted to change your habits around running and, and, and become a a type of person who, who, runs, who can run a half marathon. Uh, you, you don't want to say, I am going to change the amount of times per week that I'm going to run. What you say is, I'm a half marathon runner. And a half marathon runner trains at least five times a week. Right? You see, you see that difference. It begins with the identity not as something elusive and in the future, but right now in the present moment, in the present tense, you are this thing. And theologically speaking, what Paul is saying that is that right now, in the eyes of God, you are a saint. You have been made holy. You have been sanctified, cleansed, cleaned, remade in the image and likeness of Jesus because of his life and death and resurrection. And there is nothing about you right now that God does not love. And there are ways that you and I right now are not living into the fullness of our identity and of our calling. You see, another way of thinking about this is, is that you, you can't become a saint. <laughs> Through your own effort and energy, by your, under your own steam and direction, you can't become a saint, but you can be made one. And I think why this matters so much is, is, is our cultural context says, is in agreement on the point that if we want to become the me I want to be and we have to change who we see, yes. So we, we look inward. We look to our internal resources to try and discover that elusive and mysterious true self. 
And we then begin the work of casting off all of the, the shackles of people's expectations and opinions about who we are, and we do whatever we can to express what we understand of our truest self and our truest nature. But it's all dependent upon our own resources. And so we try and do the good thing and the right thing and the noble thing and the virtuous thing to become a saint with our own resources, but we can't. But the good news is that in and through Jesus Christ, you cannot become a saint, but you can be made one. That when you live your life in relationship to Jesus, you begin to live like Jesus. And by grace, through trusting in him, your life begins to be transformed and changed in such a way that in your habits, you resemble and reflect the priorities and the values of the kingdom of God. You begin to live like the saint that you are. <laughs> you can't become a saint, but you can be made one. And how do we do this? We don't look inward, nor do we look to some external metric like keeping the law in relationship to the scriptures. But we look upward to the character and nature of God. And the way that we look upward, this direction of change, of becoming a saint, the foundation of this experience is prayer. And I want to give us a, a helpful handle that I've, I've found useful and, and, and helpful in, in knowing what it is and how, like a, a, a sort of way of engaging prayer that I think is, is really transformative. And this comes from somebody named Pete Gregg, and he's the founder of the 24-7 the prayer movement. And he's launched uh, with his community a, a movement of prayer that has been praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week for like 25 years. So they know a thing or two about prayer and the transformation that's possible. But he offers this acronym that helpfully is the word prayer. And when we engage in prayer, this is a mode, uh, uh, basically a set of steps that are intensely practical, that give us a way of understanding and committing to something. If you don't have a prayer practice, you can begin in this way. And if you do have a prayer practice, you can use this as a way, as a way of deepening your own experience of God and becoming the person that God has created you to be. It's a, it's a bit like receiving a recipe from somebody, and you, you begin to use that recipe, and the first time you cook it, you're like looking really intensely like, how much uh, salt exactly do I use? Is that a teaspoon or a tablespoon? Like you're looking pretty intensely, but over time, it becomes part of your muscle memory, and then you're starting to say, well, it calls for a, a teaspoon, but maybe I could use a tablespoon. You know, you know what I mean? It's, like, it's that kind of lived experience. So prayer begins with pausing. And this is the biggest hurdle and obstacle to prayer in our time. To actually stop our striving to stop our human doing and simply embrace our human being. That your relationship to God is funda fundamentally dependent not on what you do, but on who you are. And so we just simply pause 
And we pause as a sign, as a recognition, that the world can continue on without my engagement in it. I simply pause. I stop moving. It's a, it's a mini Sabbath in a moment. When we're reminded <laughs> that just by simply being quiet for a moment is a protest in our culture of constant noise and bombardment of information. We pause and remember that, oh, I, I have my own thoughts and feelings and opinions and perspectives on things. We pause. But in that pausing, we embrace the wisdom of the psalmist who in Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. That there is a God, and thank God that I am not that God. And that moves us into rejoicing of, of just simply gratitude for who God is, for the fact that you are simply and utterly loved. That God cares more about the world and its problems, about your life and its problems than we ever possibly could. And so we say, thank you. And one of the great spiritual masters, Meister Eckhart, said, if the only prayer you ever uttered in your life was thank you, that would be enough. Thank you. And so we pause and then we rejoice. And I, I think between pausing and rejoicing is a bit of an explanation of why if we have prayer, prayed and experienced unanswered prayer, and although I will caveat it and say it's fundamentally more complex than this, but I think one dynamic is that between pausing and rejoicing is, is it causes us to slow down and pray actually from a right place so that we can be heard. And I think more often than not, maybe, I wonder, I wonder this about myself. I wonder if sometimes my prayers are not answered uh, because God hears them with a Doppler effect. Hey, God. Scan you. And God's like, oh, I can't hear it. You're moving too fast. What are you saying? Sit down. I want to hear you. Pause, rejoice. And then, then we ask. <laughs> then we ask. We don't just stop and say, do the drive-through prayer, God, I need this. No, we first remember who we are, then we move to who God is, the character and nature of God, and in light of the character and nature of God, who delights in giving good gifts to his children, from that place, not tepid or, 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 or trembling, like, oh God, I don't know if I can ask for this. No, with the boldness of a toddler asking their parent for food, we ask God for what we need or what we long for or what somebody else needs because we know that God cares and that God hears and that ultimately in the end, even in the midst of our unanswered prayers, that at the end of the age when Jesus returns, all of our prayers will be yes and amen. And so we pause, we rejoice, and we ask, God, what? God, I don't have the resources that I need. I don't have enough of what I need to provide for my family. I don't have enough of what I need to change myself. I need you to do something in me or through me. 
And then once we've done that, we yield, we, we surrender, we give it up in trusting, faithful obedience that God is who God says God is, that God is trustworthy and faithful, and that you are who God says you are. And that you can begin to live the answer to that prayer. So that's a way in to praying. And imagine, imagine if you just committed to this four-step movement before you did anything tomorrow morning. Like your alarm goes off and you just lay there for a minute. Just pause before the busyness of the day begins. Thank you, God, for the gift of life. Give me this day my daily bread. I trust you. Think about how different your life, your, your movement through your day might be if you began from that place rather than just hopping out of bed and, and quickly jumping into the rhythms and routines that trick you into believing that everything depends on you. And imagine if we, as a community, began living from this place. Amen. That we came together as a people who saw one another as saints. What if we saw one another not as sinners who need to be changed, but saints who need to be loved? What if we saw each other like that? And what if from that place we began to trust that God wants to answer our prayers for this community, for this neighborhood, and for this city? And what if as impactful as our community is and can be, what if there was more? What if there was more that God had in store for you? What if there was more that God had in store for us? What if God wanted to do more in and through you and in and through us? What if there were people who did not know how much God loved them and God wants to send you to tell them? What if the example of your praying life could be the example that somebody else needs to begin praying themselves? What if we took the needs and the cries and the burdens of our city before God and ask God to make it in Fresno as it is in heaven? What if we began in this place? What would change? What could change if we began in this place? Well, we need to begin in this place. We can't move too quickly out of here into our lives. And, I, and something I know about you, because it's true about me, is that you long to be a, a, the presence of love to your friends and to your neighbors Amen. and in this city. And I do too. But here's the thing. If you want to be love in the city, you must first be loved in the kingdom. If you want to be love in the city, if you want to be the presence of love in somebody else's life, you must first be loved by God. Because if we don't, then we will be constantly working for the approval of others. We'll be working on their terms. We'll be working for the wrong reasons, the wrong motivation. We need to first be loved before we can truly be love. And we'll end with this. St. Augustine said this about prayer. 
Next slide. The one that loves little, prays little. The one that loves much, prays much. There's somebody in your life who it's difficult for you to love. And how much more do we need to pray? I wonder what could change if we did. Amen.